When I look back to 1969, I sometimes can't even imagine what happened to me. It's almost like a fairy tale. It's like a fairy tale that I cannot believe and I can't imagine it happening for someone now. I am Susie Menkes and you are listening to my podcast, Creative Conversations. As a journalist reporting on the global fashion industry, I want to take you backstage and give you an insight into my world. Listen to my exclusive conversations with creatives, industry leaders, and those whose voices have some of the greatest impact. I think you might find it interesting and maybe intriguing. Hello from Paris. I'm here for Haute Couture, getting ready to head to the Chanel show. But for this episode, I want to take you into the colourful world of Zandra Rhodes. Although Zandra had a mother whose history and workmanship was in making dresses, the future designer fell in love not with body shapes, but with textiles. Patterned fabrics took her to London's Royal College of Art half a century ago. And unbelievably, Zandra is still today creating the designs that went from flat furnishings to curvy body shapes. Although appreciating modern and digital workmanship, her fashion heart continues to encourage her to scribble on a piece of paper which she holds in front of the mirror to see how it looks. And her hair, that hair, is still the vibrant, shocking pink that astounded a universe of women way back when. In many ways, Zandra, now in her 80s, is a pioneer. But she is also a classic artist who looks at a vase of lilies and turns the flowers into fabrics in her mind's eye. Two decades on America's West Coast with her late partner, Salah Hassanain, introduced her to stage clothing for opera, which she interpreted with gusto. Yet ultimately, the Zandra Road story, as seen in her rooftop London home above a lively fashion museum, is about herself and what she has given so generously to the world of multicoloured styles. How fitting it is that London's prestigious Royal College of Art, where Zandra graduated in textiles, is now launching a brand new campus in London's Battersea. It is due to open later this spring and, like Zandra herself, it will offer imaginative and original concepts to inspire. So Zandra, I'm so pleased that we're having a chance to talk now. It's been too long, although I loved last week looking at all your clothes that you had. You had a sort of mini sale and it was such fun and made you feel uplifted. So I want to ask you now, you're a dame and you've been in the fashion industry for 50 years or is it even longer? I've got down that you founded your fashion house in um, 1969, is that right? I founded the Zandra Rhodes Fashion House in 1969, but I had been working with Folan Tuffin and um, Sylvia Ayton before that. So, I mean, how can fashion keep up with you? You're so far ahead of the game. And it was so lovely seeing you in London this month in that penthouse of yours where you're sitting now. And um, 
The museum you founded is below us, of course, isn't it? The Fashion and Textile Museum. That's right. It's two floors below me here in the penthouse. And tell us a little bit about that, um, because your place is filled with pattern and colours, a lot of it um, done with your dear friend, Andrew Logan. And how important is it to you to have all this colour around you? I mean, you must have one of the most colourful places to live in of anyone I know. I think it's just probably almost happened by accident. I mean, when I first moved into my penthouse, when I bought the building and gradually, through my partner, Sala Hasnin, managed to get the museum together and build the whole, you know, get the whole thing built. And then I moved into my penthouse and it was white. And Piers Atkinson, who's going to be running my foundation, said to me, well, Sandra, you're not a very white person. You've got to do something about it. And that's when we decided to paint it all colours of the rainbow. So from the floor to halfway up are all the colours of the rainbow. But the ceiling and the top of the building is is white inside. But then, of course, the building itself um, is by Ricardo Ligaretta. So that itself is in singing orange and pink. So, I mean another person from Mexico that had a, a lovely, colourful approach. And, of course, the crowning glory of all this is your pink hair. You know, you made a mark in history, and today men as well as women have coloured hair as part of their way they like to dress. And yet when you first did it, when you first went wild pink, it was shocking, wasn't it? Didn't other people take it very strangely? I think people did take it strangely, but right at the very beginning in, what shall I I think it was about 72-3 when I started to experiment with green colours with Leonard, um, the hairdresser, and we started to experiment with colour on my hair and we used ordinary fabric dye in those days, um, which... Uh, didn't work marvellously, but did, you know, worked a bit because I didn't want to wear coloured wigs. And I thought, well, why don't I colour my hair? So that's how it came about. And pink is so easy to keep. I don't have too much maintenance problem. Well, there you are. You're in the pink, naturally. I want to go back right to the very, very beginning because we never hear that much about it. Um, I believe your father was in the Air Force in Egypt and your mother, I know, was um, worked in Paris, didn't she? And she was a fitter at the House of Worth, the Couture House in Paris. How much did that, do you think, influence your love of fashion and textiles and the arts? Was it something that came from your relationship with your mother? How, how did you move on from that to be a textile designer? I think when I look, when I look back and like you've constructed it, my home background with my mother always sewing and having wonderful exotic um, fashion books around like Queen and L'Officielle. When you think of Chatham in the south part of England, in the sort of like 50s and 60s, not many people would have had magazines like that in the house. So I suppose I was very aware of fashion and I could point to a blouse in a in a book and my mother could make it for me to wear for a party or anything. But I never thought that I'd be going into making dresses. And then I went to Medway College of Art and I thought I'd be a book illustrator because I used to draw all the time in my sketchbook. In my 
first year at college in what's called intermediate in those days, Barbara Brown, an amazing tech, strong, very strong, amazing woman, taught me and really made me fall in love with textiles and then said, if you work hard, I'll get you into the Royal College. And so that was really what happened. And then I fell in my second year. I had three years at Royal, which was wonderful. I did textiles, which in those days you do wallpapers and furnishing fabrics. And then I suddenly thought, I want to do fabrics that go on people's bodies. And Poochie was doing those amazing prints that were all for just for those garments. And it really was the big influence of my life. So I went into doing dramatic prints for garments and had to learn to make garments. Well, that, that is the interesting thing, isn't it? That you moved over into prints that are so recognisable. Even today, everything you've made over 50 years has your stamp on it. And how do you go about it now? Because the change that's happened during your years and my years, um, moving over to digital drawings... And is that your life also? Have you changed things? Or explain to our listeners now how best you describe your own prints and how you make them. I still do the very original bit on paper. I will still paint a piece of paper and hold the paper up in front of the mirror and see if that's the sort of look I want on the fabric. So um, I used to, in the old days, say, cut a hole in it and put my arms through it and look at myself. And then nowadays we would turn it then into digital. So not necessarily that it would be printed digitally, but it can be it can be then made that it can go onto screens or anything through the computer work. But I can't do any of that. I still only do the hand painting and the criticism. <laughs> Sadly. Your prints are so recognizable. Um, how do you go about hand screening then? Explain us how you make a print, because you said you do it by hand, which is sort of different from what a lot of people might expect. And um, do you just sit down with a plain piece of paper in front of you? Do you think, do you lift up a fabric? What, what do you do? How do you work on it? Um, let's say if we decide, for example, that I was doing a floral and I start drawing, let's say I'm looking, I might first of all have drawn some, let's say some lilies, but I might have been given some beautiful flowers over Christmas and I draw them. And then I think, oh, those would look lovely as a print. So I would look, I would first of all probably work in my sketchbook then I would work and put them onto paper and then I would work closely with my assistant and we'd do quite a few of them and work out how we'd want them to look, whether they were going to be lilies that would go down the front of a dress or whether it would be a small scatter. So we'd, I would work that out on paper first before having it put onto a computer. So it would have an original idea before it goes into becoming the the all-over fabric. I think there are a lot of things, um, Zandra, which people don't really know about you. And one is your um, really um, two decades in California to be with your partner, Sala. And um, he's a man who was, until he sadly died, so high up in the movie business. Um, but it was also a period for you when you branched out and you did so many Zandra Road costumes for ballet and theatre on the West Coast. So was that a different part of you that you brought out then? Actually, it was a fantastic um, 
part to be able to design for the opera more than anything else. And in fact, the opera that I designed for San Diego um, Opera Company, the Pearl Fishers, is actually now traveling to Dallas in March. And I get invited in my contract. I still get invited to go and oversee the production where I did the sets and the costumes. And the Pearl Fishers is related, is supposed to be Sri Lanka. And so I luckily had a trip to Sri Lanka with Andrew where we did lots of sketching and that helped me work out the sets and how the costumes could look and that it was near enough to India, which of course is a country that I love being in, so that I'm now go that I now revamp the costumes and check that they're all right on the next set of people in Dallas. It's interesting, isn't it, that you have done and you are still doing things that are for the theatre in every sense of the word, in other words, things that people see on the stage. And you're also making so many clothes. You're also so involved in fashion. What is the real difference between the two? If you make a spectacle on stage and music and colour and patterns brought together, is that so very different from the shows that you've done over the years? The main difference I find with doing, say, shows as opposed to doing opera, really, which I did more, is the fact in opera you're dealing with very large people and you're having to try and make them look a bit smaller because most of them remember what they were like when they were 21 and they're now 40 and they're now size 50, 16 or 14. But in the main, I mean, I suppose doing a fashion show, I still like the idea of a fashion show being a wonderful spectacle and to help you imaginatively see how the clothes would look. And then, I mean, I suppose you then have to take off the details and see the clothes in themselves. I've talked nearly enough to you about the um, museum, about what you've created. And um, I, I'm interested because the present um, exhibition for about beautiful people, um, the boutique in the 1960s counterculture, um, it's a very interesting subject. And it also explores some really rare examples from the era defining fashion, defining designers that came in the 1960s. I want you to do a reel backwards and tell me what it was like for you then. We're in the late 1960s. What are your memories of your store, the Fulham Road clothes shop, Swinging London, Chelsea, Kings Road and Paddington, where you had your studio, all these things. When you were just emerging, how did you feel what was it like? And how did you break through that mould of little pieces and brought them all together and became so famous? When I look back to 1969, I sometimes can't even imagine what happened to me. It's almost like a fairy tale. The fact that uh, the Fulham Road clothes shop, which was quite a trendy thing, but in the wrong part of the Fulham Road. So that closed. And then Sylvia Ayton got offered a job as head designer at Wallace Shops. And I was left and I thought, I hate teaching, I don't want to teach. And I thought, I'll put my own collection together. So I designed the prints and printed the prints, got someone in to machine for me, and as someone who, who had been at the Royal College who was prepared to t show me how to make patterns because he trained as a librarian. So he wasn't originally a fashion designer. And I put this collection together 
and I contacted America and with a letter of introduction from Beatrix Miller, who was head of, of English Vogue, who introduced me to Deanna Vreeland, who then saw me in America, raved about my clothes, photographed them on Natalie Wood and phoned up Henry Bendell and said, you must stock her. It's like a fairy tale that I cannot believe and I can't imagine it happening for someone now. So that I look at it and it's almost like a fairy tale happening. I went to America. I didn't know anyone in America. I had one American friend who said I could stay with him. And everything happened from there. And I came back and produced the clothes. They somehow caught the imagination of of the most amazing American women like Evangeline Bruce, who was the American ambassador's wife. And all these top people came to me to, to, to come have me make their clothes. I first met you in the King's Road, didn't I? That's what I remember. I mean, you've always been top of your profession wherever you've been. So, I mean, you would have been writing about different things then, wouldn't you? You're certainly wonderful in the way that you follow up on all the things and you're always the first to know what happens on all these things. And then your wonderful Aussie collection that you had of those lovely dresses. And then introducing us. Do you remember that wonderful dinner at your house? It was you that introduced me to Christian Lacroix. And you also introduced Aussie to Christian Lacroix. That was a long time ago. And um, at the time, um, I think that, uh, you know, a French designer was fascinated by these people he didn't really know. Nothing was nearly so international in those days. So um, although you were known, I don't think that there was much showing shows that people saw in different countries. So I think Christian Lacroix was very excited by seeing these names that he'd only just heard of. I know, it was just fabulous of you. And then you had those wonderful um, Aussie dresses that you'd, you'd, you'd preserved, which was so gorgeous. All the things that I've given away or given to museums, I still have kept the Aussie clothes. It was part of my life. It was just as I was getting engaged to be married and, you know, it was um, all that period is very close to my heart. Fabulous. Sandra, you're now 40. No, I got that wrong. Zandra. Oh, you? Sorry, <laughs> 81. <laughs> you halved me. <laughs> so you're now 81 years old and you've recently had a spell of ill health, but you're still so, so busy. This season alone, you've designed a homeware collection with Ikea and your latest project is with knitting wool, seaming up with um, West Yorkshire spinners. And you've designed four different kind of yarns for their winter 21-22 collection. Plus, there's also a pattern book with um, 15 unique hand-knit designs, which one can purchase too. So it's incredible how you're still carrying on and doing so many different things. Is this the perfect reason to pick up my knitting needles? Is that what I should be doing? <laughs> I just do like different projects and I think that different projects keep one's life exciting and I like doing things so I'm always doing things so it it, it to me it, it's just something that that keeps me busy all the time. I'd like to go into your mind and your memory and um, ask a little bit about your clients. I mean, you've had some fantastic clients. I'm sure you still do. There was um, Elizabeth Taylor, Freddie Mercury and Diana, Princess of Wales. And that's just three of them. What do you think that these people came to you for? 
Did you help them express themselves? Was it that they were looking for something that stood out because they were people working as in a glamorous situation? Why do you think they love you so much? I mean, I think that I got a phone call out of the blue from Brian May and Freddie to come and see me. And I said, this was in 1974. And I said, well, you'll have to come in the evening because I haven't got a changing room. And it was I was in my funny little studio in Bayswater. They came in the evening and then I got things off the rail and I said to Freddie, oh, move around the room and see how you feel and everything. And, you know, uh, but then... I only went once with my friend Dougie Fields to a con- that concert and saw him performing. But at that time, they weren't as famous as they are now. And Dougie and I, at that time, were at least 10, 15 years older than most of the audience. So <laughs> so I didn't follow along with them after that until... And then with... I mean, I had Lauren Bacall come round, and she, she came round to, to, for... To, to have a dress and stepped on a pin. I've never felt more embarrassed in the whole of my life. Um, <laughs> so it has been quite amazing dressing some of these people. Elizabeth Taylor, she only had something of mine that she got from elsewhere, but I never got to sort of fit her personally. But what about Princess Diana? I know that you made clothes for her. She looked so beautiful in them. And were the fittings done in secret? Was it all very much behind the um, bars? Or or did you actually see her in her home or on royal tours abroad? Did you actually see her wearing your clothes? I I went to the palace to fit her. So I went to um, Kensington Palace. She'd come into the shop, but I wasn't working in the shop. And she'd say, fit a black dress and then have it be made for her in in the lovely pale pink, that one that was off shoulder that she announced she was pregnant. And that dress was originally black and fluorescent. And I made that in pink printed with white and edged with the pearls, you know. And so, and I did notice that when I went to the very grand sale, when she decided to sell everything, I thought my dresses looked like the odd ones out amongst a lot of different things there. <laughs> I think she looked great in them and, you know, who knows how she would have dressed had she not been a princess. Um, but I don't want to give the impression that all your um, people you've designed for are in the past because there was that momentous moment in your career very recently when you got a phone call from Valentino and Pierpaolo Piccioli asking you to work on a collaboration with him. I, I think it was creating a series of um, Hieronymus Bush-inspired prints when was it, 2017? Yes, it was about two... That was a great honour. I was so thrilled that that was his first collection and he actually came over here to my studio in my rainbow penthouse and I gave him carte blanche. I said, you just look all around and see what you want me to do for you. So for me, it was a very high point that I loved doing and I did enjoy the wonderful atmosphere of being involved with the Valentino show. So was it just a one-to-one or, or did he have a whole team come out um, to work out how to do it? How, how did he operate? Um, it was a team of three that came. He has a fabulous guy who works a lot on the prints. So it was sort of like the three of them looked around and had a look at everything and then I worked very closely with one of them regarding the prints. And they turned them into prints and embroideries, which was wonderful.
I don't know that we can go on wasting the world's resources in putting out show after show. I think we've got to think of how we can, it can be incorporated so that everyone still earns a living, but we're not using up the same resources. I don't know how we're going to do it, but that's what I wonder if that's what's got to happen. Um, Sandra, are you talking about the number of shows now that some of the big houses are doing even eight or ten shows a year? Is that what you mean? Or, or you just think that in general... Well, how do you sell that much merchandise? You know, I, I don't know that the we keep being told about wastage and, and about what's going on. And, and that certainly must be a lot of wastage. But then it means a lot of people's living might go as well. So we have to think about where it all goes. I don't know. Um, one thing that intrigues me, um, you spent such a long time in LA. Do you think that that lifestyle and the attitude and the weather um, made a difference to you and influenced your work? Or were you really, is, is what you do really inside your head, whatever country you're in? I think it's what you summed up at the end. It's the, um, it's, it's my sketchbook and things that I come across and from within. I mean, I'm essentially very, very English and I don't mind what the weather's like. <laughs> and I, like I, you, you mentioned earlier, I feel I've got a lot to thank my American, my half American life in being introduced to the theatre, which I'd never have had a chance to do over here. You know, I've never met the head of the, um, of the opera house here. So I've ne never been able to do something like that. So it was a wonderful experience to do that and travel all over America doing the operas. Finally, we have to finish our conversation with the word pink. Shall I make that <laughs> P-I-N-K? Huge letters because a huge part of your life. <laughs> I know it's your favourite colour for clothes and shoes and, of course, hair. It's so expressive. It... it is it symbolic that you seem to be always in the pink? I always think that if your hair and makeup look all right, whatever you're dressed in, you can represent yourself quite well. So I think that helps. Um, and I've been very lucky that my hair hasn't fallen out, so, <laughs> which it might have done. But on the other hand, I've, I've got plenty of wigs, so even if it fell out, I could wear a wig and get away with it. <laughs> So, um, and I think it's a very happy colour. So I find it very, very useful from that point of view. Well, the main thing is that you have a style of your own. You've had it for 52 years, I think you've said, and um, it still looks as fresh and fun as it did in the first days. Congratulations. Oh, it's just been such an honour to do your programme. Thank you. You're a fun person to be with, and thank you for talking to me. Thank you for asking me. <laughs> Sandra Rhodes, what a story. You have made fashion history by painting it in the rainbow colours you used for the clothes you designed and were also and always yourself. I loved hearing about your passion for pattern and how it can remain as lively and original as when you invented it half a century ago. You have worked with other people, like your recent contribution to Valentino, and you are as dynamic with inventive clothes as with colourful simplicity. Your secret... I would rate your work, just like your pink hair, unmissable in its intelligent identity. My next podcast is of another woman designer, 
but this time from America by way of parental genes in China and Japan. Anna Sui will tell us about her colourful life in New York, where her inspiration comes from and how her collections from the 1990s are having a resurgence on the resell scene. Creative Conversations with Susie Menkes is produced by Natasha Cowan, music by Yer Zuba, graphics by Paul Wallace, and edited by Tim Thornton. To find my articles, visit susiemenkes.com and susiemenkes on Instagram. If you've enjoyed the podcast, then please do rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends. You can find me on all the usual channels. <music>